Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back after a summer break. The last time we spoke to you together on this podcast was over a month ago. And then during that time, Kartik interviewed ESPN's head of soccer production, as well as Ian Dark, and a tactical breakdown with Danny Higginbotham. So what did we miss? Euro 2020 and Copa America is over. The Olympics begin on Wednesday. And in the meantime, the Gold Cup meanders along. Kartik, what would you say is your takeaway from Euro 2020? And and it doesn't have to be TV production-wise. It, it could be if you want it to be. But what for you will you remember Euro 2020 for? I think very much kind of the... Um and it's funny because Jonathan Wilson, it was a working thesis of mine, and then now confirmation bias. Jonathan Wilson has written about it in The Guardian, so I now know I'm right, of course, because Wilson wrote about it. But that we've gone from this era of like superstar players, which I, which in Wilson's uh, in the article Wilson wrote, he basically said Copa America hasn't gotten away from that. It's all about Neymar versus Messi or, or whatever combination of players. So maybe that's why the South American game is lagging. But we've gotten away from this era of superstar players and individual players into very much a team ethos. You could argue England doesn't have the level of superstar they once did. They're better than they've ever been, or at least since 1966. Maybe better than that even. Uh, Italy doesn't have a superstar. Their team ethos has gotten them back to the very top of the mountain. Spain, who were dominated by stars in their previous golden era, now have really virtually no stars or aging stars, fading stars like Busquets. They're as good as they've been since uh, the end of that golden era from, from 2008 to 2012. Denmark, you take the one star they have away from them in Christian Eriksen and they get better. Uh, and get to the semifinals and maybe we're unlucky to not be in the finals so that's my takeaway it's now uh we're now entering an era of superior teams and systems in international football yeah oh and i should say the flip side is the two teams with the three teams that were littered with stars belgium portugal and france all bombed out at quarterfinals or before yeah i I would say my takeaway is just the increased quality level talent level when you look at the euro 2020 
I can't think of any bad sides. I mean, the, the, all the teams that were performing in this tournament, um, and there were quite a lot of surprises. I, I think, I mean, you're, you're probably uh, the exception to this, Kartik, but I think probably a lot of people were surprised by how good Austria was, how good Switzerland yeah. was, um, how well Scotland did. I, I, to me, they uh, exceeded my expectations of, uh, of what I thought that they would accomplish. And um, I don't think there were any teams in this tournament that were that were poor. Everything, I mean, Slovakia was strong. I mean, you go down the list, there was a lot of strong teams. Even North Macedonia, uh, yeah. they lost all three matches, but they were in all three matches at, at one point and actually uh, had a number of disallowed goals and controversial calls in their games also. So what about Copa America? So um, before I ask you what your kind of thought on that was or kind of your takeaway from that going back to something you said a a minute ago talking about the team ethos and how important that is it it seems that fox sports are behind the times because if you watched any of their copa america coverage it was individual against individual it was uh, messi against neymar it was uh, alexis against um miguel almaron it was it was I mean, throughout the entire month of their coverage, they had the the big giant TV screens in the background, and they kept on focusing on one player versus one player. And it was even to the point of, I think, one of the U.S. women's national team friendlies where they played Mexico, and it was, I don't know, Megan Rapino against, and I'm not sure even who it was or what her name was I, I can't remember I apologize but one of the Mexican players well the Mexican female team I don't think has any players at or near a level in terms of popularity of a, a Megan Rapino uh, by any means so, so they, kind of, they, were, they were stretching on that one for sure but you mean it, it, it seems to be I, I, I am in, in agreement Kartik with you about the team ethos but, but what for you was your uh, takeaway from, from Copa America well, as I said, Jonathan Wilson in his article in The Guardian uh, mentioned that the team ethos uh, does not is not applying to South American countries, uh, and they're still very much dependent on individuals, which is maybe why – because, you know, Wilson really likes South American football and rates it. That might be why we're seeing European countries um, emerge in World Cups as as the as the winners and the teams generally getting to the semifinals and finals. That uh, he doesn't believe the talent level is any different in South America. He believes uh, Argentina and Brazil have as much talent as Italy or Spain. However, there is now this very kind of system oriented football. Uh, coming out, well, it came out of Spain a while ago, uh, but now that has that has hit Italy, has hit England, uh, that has hit other countries. So, I think the other the, the the takeaway for me on Copa America was that um, it's awfully difficult to go through a tournament, um, a group stage of a tournament where I was taking matches pretty seriously to have only one team eliminated from each group. Um, and this is setting up for me to be a major disaster as FIFA moves to this um, 48-team World Cup where 32 teams will make the knockout stage uh, in 2026. I realized after the group stage of Copa America that it was a waste of time because effectively four teams advanced from each group. We And we, we played all those matches to eliminate the two teams that would probably be eliminated anyway, right? The two worst uh, teams on the South American continent. So um, that, that's my takeaway, unfortunately, Chris, is that 
looking ahead to what FIFA is planning for the 2026 World Cup and a tournament where you have um, a short group stage with two of the teams, two, two of the teams get out of each group of three team groups. Uh, I just think the group stage then is a waste. Yeah, not only that, though, Kartik, but this week, and we've heard rumblings about this uh, previously, but this week FIFA talking about uh, the possibility of going every two years for World Cups instead of every four years. So you can just imagine even having 48, 54, 52, however many teams (laughs) it would be every two years. In that case, just get get rid of the whole qualification process. Yeah. The, The other thing about Copa America is before this tournament even begun, it felt like I mean, let's just let's just uh, go ahead and just Brazil against Argentina and just play one game and call it the Copa America final and that's it, because the chances are we're very likely that those two teams would be in the final anyway, and and no offense to Colombia or any of the other teams that certainly battled hard and gave those teams a run for the money to try to uh, to try to make it into the final, but it, it did seem very likely just the way also the groups were set up too uh, that it would be. Yeah, Brazil against uh, Argentina in the final. Same thing with Gold Cup. It's very likely it'll be USA against Mexico. I mean, it, that's the way. That's the the game that I mean, seemingly everybody wants. Concacaf wants. U.S. Men's National Team uh, wants. Mexico wants. Everyone wants to see that in the final. My, my takeaway for Copa America is just how different the game is played in that competition versus what we're used to seeing, and it was extremely more physical and and a lot of it comes down to the officiating where the referees just let things go but let things go where they get out of control uh i think the first week of copa america almost every single game there were fights on the field like the two teams kind of uh coming up up against each other because of a a harsh tackle or a late tackle whatever it may be referee gets involved tries to break it up it was almost every single game i watched that had that and you take that and then compare it to, I don't know, Champions League final or something like that. And the way that those two games are played out and officiated, it's almost like you have two different sports. You have a very rough, physical um, type style of play versus uh, not very well officiated. You have something that's on the other side of the spectrum where it's almost uh, too officiated, where the, the referee's getting involved a lot. I mean, I mean put it, put in, uh, stepping down uh, early in the game to you mean, show a yellow card, which sets the tone for the game, and then and it becomes very... You mean a very close game with not not a lot of harsh fouling. Um, so th- there's pros and cons to both sides, but that was my takeaway from from Copa America. I think you've hit on something else, which is the, the, the uh, number. Uh, there weren't that many uh, bad challenges in the Euros. I mean, we didn't see the sort of and this to me was. I think you and I had a, a offline conversation, private conversation about this after the first set of group games that you didn't have kind of the cynical. Um, challenges and physical games you typically have in the first round of group ga- group stage games in any competition, whether it be the Euros, Copa, Copa, we certainly had it, you were just d- describing that, the World Cups, generally you have that in any competition and you did it in this. And then the other uh, thing was that the number of teams in the competition that were willing to have a go, Switzerland against France, they dominated that first half. Uh, then fell behind 3-1, right? But then came back and, and ended up advancing. But they dominated the first half. 
Italy, who were the best team in the tournament, were thoroughly outplayed, I think, in the second half, or at least from minutes 45 to 75 by Austria in the round of 16. And you can go through more examples of that. You can go through uh, large portions of matches where the team you would think would be on the back foot and would be sitting deep and trying to absorb pressure were going and having a go at at the perceived better team. And that was something that... um, I didn't expect coming into the tournament. I mean, as much as I, and you said it wasn't a surprise to me uh, that Switzerland and Austria were so good in this tournament. Um, I tipped them both because I probably have some built-in bias towards the Bundesliga because it's the league I like the best. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't have much confidence in my picks of them to be surprise teams. And as it turns out, they both did well. Um, But that to me was like a big part of it. The lack of cynicism and, uh, and overly physical play. I mean, I think the only team we saw really subjected to that was Spain because Spain has so much of the ball and have so many ways they can beat you. Luis Enrique has, has integrated more of a direct style at times in how Spain plays. They're still very uh, vertical, uh, vertical tiki-taka, uh, not vertical, horizontal and that, but then they, they have a vertical game to go with it. Um, and if they're finishing were a little better from Moreno and Morata throughout the tournament, they I think they would have won it. Uh, but that's the only team you saw uh, the opposition really kind of say, hey, we, we don't want to play with them. Uh, the other 23 teams are all kind of on, a, on the same level playing against one another. So we will get to uh, talking about the television coverage in our listener mailbag section. Uh, we'll go a little bit deeper into that. But one more thing, Kartik, before we move on to the uh, TV streaming news section is one of the things that so was a huge point of, of discussion throughout Euro 2020. And there were two sides of the fence on this one. There was very little, very few people that sat on the fence. But the amount of vitriol and dislike for Taylor Twelman in this competition as a, co- a co-commentator was was enormous. I mean, you had so many people posting comments on you know, social media, on worldsoccertalk.com, uh, just people really, really upset with him being the co-commentator. And I, I know you value him. I value him too. Um, but it seems to be... I mean, the actual criticism about him didn't seem to be filled with he said this or there was something specific that he said or did a lot of it just seemed to be that he was had an american accent that that was my feeling was that uh you mean if you put somebody else in that same spot maybe it was taylor and taylor had a, a a british accent i don't think there'd be as much criticism uh placed on him or, or directed at him um you mean, but but he is American. He is good. He's one of the best, if not the best, co-commentator in the United States. Um, I thought he did really well, and you I mean some games are better than others. But um, I think part of it seems to be that just there's a, there's definitely a lot of hate towards Major League Soccer among soccer fans and soccer fans of all sorts of different uh, likes and dislikes and and. Um, from from the within the United States, whether the fans of Serie A or Liga MX or the Bundesliga or the Premier League or or whatever it may be, but I think a lot of it is is baggage. Where I mean, they kind of take out a lot of their criticisms about Taylor Twelman because he is so associated with Major League Soccer. 
he is such I mean you I mean he's one of the ESPN's lead co-commentator for Major League Soccer and then having him do the games for um, ESPN on the Euro 2020 being the lead co-com uh, co-com uh, that that's my take on it what about you Kartik what do you what, what do you make of all of this I mean do you think that um, it was fair no I think it's ridiculous I mean I, I think you have an inherent bias among a lot of American fans. Uh, now, some of them, I agree, are the kind of the the, the, the the bros, if you want to call them that, that hate anything associated with Major League Soccer. I, and I saw definitely some of that. And uh, people who um, – some of these people are, are people – and because I'm generally on their side of most of these ideological debates within U.S. soccer. But you could be 99 percent with them. And they assume you're an MLS shill. I mean, I've had some of the people who were attacking Twelman actually on Twelman attack uh, on Twitter attack me, saying, "Oh, I thought you were a big MLS guy," even though I agree with them on everything. I just understand because I've worked in the game in front offices that uh, you can't just blow things up uh, and and it'll change overnight. There are gradual incrementalism that needs to take place and that there's also a value you put on the fact that there are things in MLS that work to develop certain American players and there are things in our system, USL and in in the lower divisions that are working most of it doesn't work but some of it does, so by saying some of it does, you disqualify yourself in some of these people's eyes, that's the Twelman problem with them, right, Twelman is as critical of uh, the system and the problems within the system as anyone out there uh, in the media, with the exception of probably uh, among the former players, with the exception of, of Hercules Gomez, uh, of people who are on a lot. But he gets that. Now, the other aspect, though, Chris, is something that I think is more more. Um, it's a larger segment of the audience and it's more serious, which is the Premier League fan, the American Premier League fan that is English language dominant, that doesn't watch any domestic soccer, that wants everything delivered with an English accent and a certain style. And quite honestly, they're, the, some of the co-commentators for Premier League matches are terrible. And they don't give you the amount of information or historical data that Twelman does. So now you get them saying, well, he talks too much. He says too much. Uh, he needs to shut up like the commentators, we co-commentators we have doing Premier League games. But he's giving you a lot more information. I mean, in fact, during the, the Spain-Italy uh, penalty shootout, I uh, no, no, that was that the game uh, they did? Yes. Um, he and Champion were going back and forth talking about specific uh, penalty situations from past Euro tournaments. Yeah, I see. And Twelman... Yeah, go ahead. Twelman even, knew where, Twelman even knew where German players had made penalties or missed in the past, uh, in past knockout stage matches, which I think is maybe information overload for a lot well, of people. Maybe he, that's their problem. He, he definitely did his homework on the penalty kicks, but I think it was the, the final, right? The Italy-England uh, final. And I thought that was too much because he was like, okay, the last time, I don't know, Jorginho took the penalty kick, he, he, he kicked it to the right, to the goalkeeper's left, whatever it may be. It just, I mean, he went on. To me, for, when it's penalty kicks, if I'm a, if I'm a, uh, a, a viewer, I would rather the, the, co- the, the commentator... The, the co-commentator get out of the way. Just let the just let the lead commentator give us an idea of uh, what what the score is at. I mean, it's I don't know, it's two two now going into the third round of penalty kicks. But to me, I, I don't want to know where that player kicks the ball last or where the goalkeeper say which way he dives. 
I just want to enjoy. Well, I hate penalty kicks, but I, I just want to watch <laughs> the penalty kicks uh, taking place in front of me. I, I don't want the co-commentator telling me what to expect. To me, um, the whole thing about penalty kicks is that the the spontaneity of it. In reality, yes, there isn't a lot of spont- spontaneity in it because uh, both the penalty kickers and the goalkeepers do their homework. So it's it's almost like a chess match. But for me, that that was one thing that I didn't like about uh, Taylor's uh, commentary. And, and that's the thing at the end of the day is that um, we all have our likes and dislikes. And I think with Taylor Twelman... It's like you, you and I, Kartik. You might like the Beatles. I might like the Rolling Stones. And I may, I mean, like certain co-commentators better than others because they fit my style more. But it was just interesting uh, on the sidelines watching this throughout the whole Euro 2020, and just the amount of, you I mean, yes, there was positivity towards uh, Taylor too. A lot of people saying how how good he was. But the majority of people seem to be more negative, or at least the, the vocal minority, perhaps. But they were very uh, vocal about that. Um, but yeah, no, for me personally, um, I really, really enjoyed the tournament. And I thought uh, ESPN's coverage got better as the tournament went along. The, the other thing about Taylor Twelman, the Kartik, I would say is that, personally speaking, I would much prefer to see Taylor Twelman in the studio, be a studio analyst, and... He's, he's good as a co-commentator, but I think he's better as a studio analyst, Where, whether it's the tactics board, whether it's getting into a debate with some of the uh, experts uh, in the studio, or whether it's just some of the things he says. I would m- much prefer that in a studio analysis point of view. Now, I mean, I, I'm, if I'm Taylor, I, I'm sure I'd love to be at Wembley being co-commentator and doing a studio analysis, but if I had to pick... My personal preference for where Taylor is best, I think it's in the studio. All right, Kartik, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news, and we'll come back to more talk about ESPN, Fox, uh, and other, I mean, Copa America, Gold Cup, uh, Euros, etc., in the listener mailbag section. But I'll have you uh, hit it up first with uh, some news to bring listeners up to date with. Yeah, this was big news toward the end of last month. Again, we haven't done this format of the show in a month. Uh, YouTube is going to stream all the women's UEFA Champions League ma- uh, matches for free uh, to those of us in the U.S. and in most territories, Europe. I think uh, your uh, North Africa and the Middle East is the one area of the world that they're not going to be doing this. DAZN uh, will be uh, responsible for uh, the production and the broadcasting, but it will be free. It won't be behind a DAZN paywall, and this deal will run through 2020. So fantastic news. Uh, the Women's Champions League has gotten better and better each year. I know a lot of um, NWSL fans don't like me saying that. They've become very – that's become another thing in, America, in U.S. soccer fandom that we can talk about another time. This uh, uh, NWSL fan saying, hey, the Champions League and European leagues aren't as good as you think they are. But this is really exciting. I think it's going to be very important for uh, people who want a balanced perspective on the women's game in the U.S. to be able to watch these. And again, uh, it will not be behind a disowned page wall but it will be DAZN broadcast and I'm sure DAZN will be incentivizing you to sign up for their uh, packages for, for DAZN um, their premium packages during the broadcast yeah what it does uh, show us also Kartik is the continued fractured nature of soccer in the United States there's so many yeah. choices so many games available uh, on any given weekend, well, during the height of a season, there's about 60 to 80 games available per day. And you've got viewers 
and listeners such as ourselves picking and choosing? I mean, whether it's watching the Women's UEFA Champions League games for free on YouTube, watching Premier League, MLS, USL, Serie A, I mean, you name it, South American soccer, African soccer, soccer from around the world. So what it does is... um, it really kind of sets us apart in many ways because the, the viewing numbers for some of these big games probably are not as great as they used to be where that was the only game in town on that particular afternoon. Now there might be like 15 to 20 other choices happening at the same given time. So I think the, the soccer uh, viewership universe in the United States is growing, but it, it has become more fractured. And if you look at the TV ratings for those games that are available... Somebody uh, from outside soccer might look at that and go like, eh, I don't think soccer's that big. Look, this, this game only got 300,000 viewers, or this game only got 250,000 viewers. Well, there might have been 10 or 15 other games going on at the same time. Next news item is that Univision's Prende TV has picked up uh, Spanish-language rights to select Brasileiro and Argentine League games. So each weekend, about two to three games uh, on uh, Prende TV, which is their free streaming service. Um, at the same time, Fanatis will continue to show all the games from the Brazilian League uh, and all the games from the Argentine League. So this looks like it's a deal that uh, Fanatis did with uh, Univision to go ahead and sublicense out some of the games from Brazil and Argentina and then make those available through uh, Prende TV. But also, again, there are still all the games are um, on Fanatis, both for Brazilian League and the Argentine League. And don't, don't forget, too, Paramount Plus has the rights to these games in English language uh, through the Paramount Plus uh, streaming service. Speaking of Paramount Plus, Kartik, maybe uh, give us some insight in terms of some of their plans coming up. Yeah, uh, we're under, we understand that uh, Matteo Benetti, who uh, did broadcast the Euros with Mark Donaldson, several matches um, for ESPN, and has done Serie A the last three years at, at ESPN and before that uh, at BN, uh, is likely to join CBS Sports and Paramount Plus for their coverage of Serie A next season, while another uh, former South Florida-based uh, BN personality actually uh, was with Gold TV also, uh, Dre Cordero, uh, will likely be calling La Liga games on ESPN Plus, uh, which is uh, very interesting news. There was uh, there have been rumors floating around previously, Chris, that uh, that ESPN was just going to give us the world feed for everything uh, La Liga related. Um, that appears not to be the case. I'm sure many of the matches will be world feed, uh, but uh, Dre Cordero, we're told, uh, likely to be calling uh, some matches select matches for ESPN on ESPN Plus for La Liga. Yeah, so Serie A, the new season begins on August 21st, um, live on Paramount Plus. What do you think, Kartik? Do you think they'll do the studio from the UK or the US? CVS? Yeah, I believe they'll do it from the UK. I think... um, it's also really strategic in terms of the world feed for uh, Serie A, where you hear some of the names we're all kind of familiar with, including Stuart Robson, who uh, was very prominent on the ESPN during the Euro tournament. Uh, that they, uh, IMG uh, operates their Serie A world feed in English out of the very same studio. So I think it's just a good synergy where it may give CBS more options, even as far as studio programming, uh, bringing in uh, some of those uh, – 
commentators and co-commentators uh, to CBS's studio at times if they're not calling uh, a match. And Serie A, uh, incredibly competitive last year. They were six really good teams in Serie A last year. And now this season, we're anticipating a seventh team, Roma under Jose Mourinho, to be there. So I think they'll do it out of London. Yeah, so we've got uh, Serie A moving to Paramount Plus, and we've got uh, La Liga moving to ESPN Plus. And uh, we have on the homepage of worldsoccertalk.com, we have FAQs for both um, both Paramount Plus and Serie A, as well as La Liga and ESPN Plus. They go into a lot more detail about their coverage plans and what we know so far. There will be news coming up in the next couple of weeks, I'm sure, about more uh, details regarding those coverage plans for sure. And uh, last but not least, um, the UEFA Euro 2020 final on ESPN, Univision and Tudo NA set a record as the most watched European football championship match ever in the United States with an audience of 9.3 million viewers. On ESPN, the viewership was 6.4 million and then uh, Univision scored uh, 2.9 million viewers. Kartik, 9.3 million uh, bigger than you thought, or, or just about that? Yeah, no, much bigger than I thought. Uh, I think that they really benefited from who were in the final because uh, England has a built-in following in the U.S. for various reasons, uh, particularly Premier League fans. You know, I know so many. Uh, it's very weird. I know many Premier League American fans, right? And kind of your classic white suburban upper middle class. You know, you know, liberal person that root for England's national team and don't care about the U.S. men's national team. So a number of those sorts of people are watching England. And then there's the the Italian ethnic audience in the U.S., which unlike the German ethnic audience and the Spanish ethnic audience does get behind the Azuri, right, does get yep. involved, does start watching uh, Italy in tournament football and, and gets very nationalistic, even if they're not paying attention to soccer uh, the other the rest of the year. Right. They, they get involved in these summer tournaments. So I think it was an ideal final, particularly on the English language side for ESPN. Um, the Univision number was surprisingly high at, at close to three million. But um ideal final but still if it had been spain and denmark which it very easily could have been i think the numbers probably would have been pretty high not quite this high but would have been pretty high there was more mainstream interest in this euros than any previous euros and i have to say chris to a large extent it felt like there was more mainstream interest than world cups outside of u.s games now that may be a bit of a leap of faith or leap in commentary by me but it just felt that way based on kind of historic factors and we know people watch world cup finals and world cup semifinals but it tends to always be kind of a uh, an ethnic audience or just a casual audience but it felt like this entire tournament people were following um, and really, uh, starting with the maybe not the first weekend and the Ericsson, uh, uh, tra- uh, the er- Ericsson situation, but mm-hmm. um, that France Germany game, the first Monday of the tournament, three days after the tournament kicked off. I think from that point, it, it felt like it was a very mainstream sporting event, which uh, I don't think we could ever say about the Euros in the past, and often doesn't even feel like it for a World Cup outside of U.S. games until very late in a World Cup. Yeah, and also, I guess, Copa America final on FS1, that one had, if I remember correctly, uh, for the final, 1.8 million viewers watched that game. And again, on ESPN, the viewership was 6.4 million. So you had Brazil against Argentina uh, with two, uh, with arguably two of the best players in the world out of the three 
I mean, Neymar and Messi, 1.8 million, and then ESPN with 6.4 million. For Italy, great team ethos against England, great team ethos, but neither, neither of those two teams had uh, stars of the, of the level of a Neymar or a Messi. So it goes back right. to your whole t- team approach, Kartik. Well, there's many different variables, but the, but the team ethic and uh, the quality of that ESPN broadcast, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, was top-notch uh, indeed. Listener mailbag. First up is uh, Dave. Dave says, I am enjoying your series of interviews, and this was especially interesting, the interview with Danny Higginbotham. My tactical knowledge is minimal, and I generally prefer my team to have a strong goal scorer and to take risks such as a high press or a high line, etc. I particularly liked learning from Danny Higginbotham about why many successful teams do not do the things I prefer and what some teams are trying to achieve with formations, spacing, and mismatches. Uh, Neeland says, uh, thanks for this interview. I have tons of respect for Ian Dark, and it's great to hear his thoughts on these things. I've been fascinated with the commentator approach ever since I saw Nick Barney's um, beautiful notes, which I think were originally published in 8x8 magazine a while back. Ian is football royalty in my book, and if there's ever a chance to hear about his process as a commentator, I'd love to hear more. And then last but not least, in terms of um, the mailbag, as far as interview feedback, Chris Guardino says, I have been enjoying these series of interviews, especially the one Kartik did with Ian Dark. This, um, this week's pod with Danny Higginbotham I found interesting because it provided a level of analysis regarding tactics that explained a lot in terms of how the modern game is played. Danny Higginbotham did a did an excellent job, in my view, of breaking them down so that the average fan could understand why certain teams play in a certain style. Even though this episode was focused on the Euros, I would love to see a similar episode done with the Copa America and the tactical trends that came out of that competition. So, yeah, full, full credit to... Um, Kartik uh, for doing the interviews with Ian Dark, with uh, Amy Rosenfeld, and with Danny Higginbotham. Uh, we wanted to mix things up a little bit, um, especially with the summer tournaments too, and where there's like three games a day from the Euros, and usually two games a day from uh, from the Gold Cup. Uh, I'm sorry, from Copa America, as well as two games a day from uh, Gold Cup. We know that most soccer fans probably are not going to be listening to as many podcasts as usual because I mean, most of the time is spent watching games and uh, thinking about those games. So we mixed things up a little bit, took a little bit of a break, but then had, had Kartik do those interviews. And yeah, I enjoy them, Kartik. I thought they were really, really good. I appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, I, I learned a lot from the interviews myself. I mean, listening to Dan, Danny Higginbotham, what a wealth of uh, knowledge he is. And, and in, in terms of Amy Rosenfeld, learned so much about the the production and talent side and just the the operations, if you will, of, of broadcasting major tournaments. And, and then obviously Ian Dark is a legend. So uh, it speaks for itself being able to have a chance to, to talk with him. Aram says, I'm curious to know which extra time format you and Kartik prefer. Uh, Copa America, which goes straight to penalties after 90 minutes, or the Euros? Personally, I prefer skipping extra time since these tournament games are every four days or so, and these players are coming off grueling club seasons. Plus, it would be better for broadcasters since they have a predictable broadcast window for every match. This was, this was interesting, Kartik, because I think for the games that did go through extra time in the Euro, in the Euros, 
I don't think they were the predictable extra time that we've had in, in previous tournaments where it's been 30 minutes of just nothing, of teams being very conservative. I, I thought these were actually pretty entertaining for the most part. Yeah, especially the Austria-Italy uh, extra time, which was filled with goals. And uh, uh, Italy scored twice, Austria scored once, and Austria could have scored uh, another goal or two, right? They might have, they could have even taken that match uh, in extra time. I have been partial to the 90 minutes and penalties historically. In fact, the league, uh, the adult league I manage in, in Florida, I have, uh, I, I, I changed the rules and made it 90 and, and then pens instead of the extra time for the reasons you outlined, which the uh, extra time would always be very predictable. Teams would be very negative. Guys would be getting injured. I think the o- only example of that I can think of in the uh, um, in the tournament in the Euros was the Ukraine Sweden game. You know, Ukraine got a winner in extra time. I just felt like um, guys were getting hurt. Um, there were some really. I talked about there not being many cynical challenges in the uh, in, in the extra time um, or in the Euros, but I think there were uh, multiple cynical challenges from Sweden in that uh, extra time period as Ukraine was getting more more on the front foot. You had a guy sent off. Um, but yeah, I'm partial to the 90 minute and penalties. But Chris, you make a good case, and I'm I'm hedging after this tournament because extra time was filled with a lot of drama in uh, in, in many of the matches. It wasn't as predictable as normal, and we didn't have the cynicism we typically have, except obviously in that one example I mentioned, Ukraine, Sweden. Kartik, I, I, I'm laughing to myself a little bit here, but I what I would prefer to see is taking away penalties. So if it's playing 30 minutes of extra time and then playing, I don't know, an additional 15 minutes, but playing each team's playing two, two men down or something. So it's 9v9, um, something, some other solution than penalty kicks. I mean, I, I realize that, that games have to finish, have to end. Uh, they can't just keep on going on and on. But um, and and this might be just for, I mean, kind of uh, sadness that England didn't win that penalty <laughs> contest. But I, I don't think it's that. I, no matter when it is, I just feel that penalties is just such a a crapshoot, a, a crapshoot, a way to decide a game that it's really. I mean, it's it's really I don't know. There's got to be a better way. And and I mean, penalties. I, I don't I don't think is it. There is a better way. Oh, no, 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 yeah, no. NSL slash MLS shootout. No, no, Chris, it's much more skillful. <laughs> I mean, the the penalty kicks are oh. penalty kicks are a crapshoot. I completely agree with that. It depends on whether a keeper guesses right or a guy. Um, you know, for all the Paneka moments, right? Czechoslovakia defeats West Germany in the seventy six Euro final on that Paneka penalty. You have it's just you know guys missing or guys getting lucky with their dives. I would argue the MLS NASL shootout. The MLS had it the first four seasons of MLS, it was in the old NASL, is much more skill. It involves skill. So yeah, if you're going to have yeah. a tiebreaker, do that. Um, I, now, I, if you're not going to, if you don't need a tiebreaker, I say, yeah, I agree. Play on. <laughs> but if you play on, you have to allow unlimited substitution. So that would be the one caveat. So I, I, I agree with you, Kartik. I think th- I think that is a better way. The reason why I'm against it or, or have a lot of uh, bad memories about it is because I was watching so many MLS games in the late 90s, early 2000s where it'd be an entertaining game maybe it was uh, New York Red Bulls against, uh, on New York Metro Stars uh, at the time against, uh, I don't know, Miami Fusion or Tampa Bay Mutiny, whatever it'd be a great game, 3-3 game just in the regular season, wonderful game 
and then the game ends 3-3 okay great that, 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 that's a game a regular season game where both teams should walk away with one point but no 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 we have the MLS shootout and, it, and then it becomes almost like a, like a circus uh, to try to decide who's going to have the I don't know two points or three points whatever it was back then to walk away with, with the victory from those and to me that wasn't practical it was meaningless yeah. it was like you know if a game ends 3-3 and it's an entertaining draw that's it that, that's fine walk away it does, every game does not have to end in a, a victory a win or a loss but for a European championship yeah I, I guess yeah that is more skill that is more entertaining um and it, yeah, that would be better than having penalties. I agree with you. I just I have a lot of bad, <laughs> bad memories, but bad experiences being at games where sometimes at the end of regulation time, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to leave. I'm, I'm going to go home because to me, in my mind, that ended a draw. I was happy with that result of that game. Why should I have to now sit through 15 to 20 minutes of MLS shootouts just to have a winner, which is completely relatively meaningless at the end of the day there were also i should say in the in the mls period 96 to 99 or 2000 no i think 2000 they did away with the penalties right that was the year that we had the the two periods of extra time in regular season matches which made no sense either and then if it ended uh level it was a tie but um then they finally went to universal uh international rules i think in 2001 but um there were a disproportionate number of injuries in the shootout because you're coming keepers are coming off their line at full speed and so that was uh in fact an injury one prominent injury i remember was an injury eric when all got um when he was still playing for san jose not before he came to the fusion and uh that uh disrupted his prep for the 98 World Cup, which, as we know, was a disaster. And we now subsequently know there was other stuff going on <laughs> off the field with Winalda and, and, and uh, teammates, former teammates at the time, yeah. um, which dogged the U.S. prep also. But, um, yeah, there were a lot of injuries. And when you're talking about tired players after 120 minutes, that could be uh, an issue. My, my preference, Chris, is just to play on and allow um, unlimited subs but I know that purists will get angry about too. So, um, yeah, I don't know. All right, let's continue. So now the listener mailbag, we've got uh, a bunch of uh, continuous feedback about uh, the Euros and uh, ESPN's coverage. First up is JP. JP says uh, the announcers on ESPN have been mostly awful. I may be biased because it seems that almost every match I've watched was called by Alejandro Moreno or Twelman. The Wolf feed is almost always better, but we know the networks like to use in-house talent so they can promote other offerings from the network. Simple as that. Same for ESPN using their own score time bug. With regards to a timeline for tournaments going streaming, I think that misses the point. No one is calling for streaming only asking for a streaming option. ESPN can show the matches on cable or over the air, while at the same time allowing it to simulcast on ESPN+. Either way, getting their approximately 5 bucks per, per subscriber, this just isn't uh, a, an ESPN critique, and it applies to a lot of other streaming services and broadcasters too. What was interesting, Kartik, I think, and I missed this, but um, I know there was all of the controversy about ESPN+, and their... Um, coverage of the tournament because they weren't showing what some people thought they would show 
But the final, I didn't watch it. But the final, I watched the final on TV. But from what I understand, the final on ESPN Plus, they, they showed the, the full match broadcast, which I thought was interesting. But probably by that point, they thought, okay, well, let's just go ahead and show it because it's, it's going to be too much criticism otherwise. Yeah, that, that that's actually surprising. I wasn't aware of that until now that they did that. Um, one more thing, actually, before we move on to uh, list of mailbag, continuous, uh, continue with that is. Uh, I, somebody and actually I, I apologize for not having your name um, available right now to, to mention it but someone emailed me and said like hey Chris did you realize that Bleacher Report Live is no longer in business and I was like okay well I knew that at some point they were going to go ahead and, and take BR Live and put that into the Bleacher Report well it happened in June I, I think nobody knew about it unless you're a, a BR Live subscriber Um Two years ago, Kartik, we were probably talking a lot about BR Live and about, you mean, uh, Champions League coverage, Europa League coverage. They were having basketball where they were showing, I think, the last five minutes of a game. You could subscribe to pay, I don't know, five bucks or ten bucks to watch the last uh, few minutes of a game. Um, it was talk of the town. And then it, it sails off into the distance and there's no more. And there's no announcement. There's no news about it. Um, so that that I thought was uh, pretty interesting. All right, let me continue here. So Disco George says, kind of funny. I just uh, finished the podcast at halftime of the Turkey Wales match, and I, I noticed that the next break between matches featured a little more tactical analysis than I'd seen previously. First, Chris Coleman and Julie Fowdy were breaking down how Wales kept getting through the Turkish back line. And then there was a Taylor Twelman, Alejandro, Alessandro del Piero preview on what to look for in Italy. I wonder if some of the niceness on the ESPN set is kind of a cultural thing as well. Over after over a year of people trying to be kinder and give each other the benefit of the doubt, and then watching a player almost die on the pitch during the opening weekend of the tournament, I'm not surprised that nobody really wants to be that person ready to fight over a 4-3-3 versus a 4-3-1-2, especially among what is more or less a group of strangers or acquaintances. The the uh, ESPN FC group is so familiar with each other that the dynamic is a lot more banter-driven and comfortable. There's an established culture that the pre- and post-game uh, group doesn't have, especially with a rotating cast. I think things have to improve as the stakes get higher, and there's more to analyze after this first round of group stage matches. So, so this this comment came in um, probably a couple of weeks ago, and this was this would have come in right after we did the podcast about our first impressions of ESPN's coverage, and after probably the opening weekend. And I agree with Disco George. It um, the, the first impressions of ESPN's coverage were not good, but I think a lot of that was because a lot of these analysts hadn't spent much time together and because of covid and were coming fresh into the studio and trying to develop a chemistry and trying to provide analysis it takes time and as the tournament went on it got better and better and i think from the production's point of view too i think they probably figured out who was the best people to put on the set at given any given time and who had the best chemistry and there were different people who brought on board uh Neda uh, Manoha, who you interviewed also, and um, uh, Sammy Kadira joined a little bit later. So as it went on, it, I think it got better and better. But there was definitely that niceness about it. 
it felt very professional it felt very cultured um, and it didn't feel like previous ESPN's coverage of the World Cup where it was more debate driven so I, I think it was still good Conte I still enjoyed it uh, it was just a lot different than I thought it would be agree I, I, and I think one of the things that I hadn't considered that first week when I was critical of ESPN's coverage was the chemistry wasn't quite there because of COVID and they didn't have the sort of and, and Amy Rosenfeld got into this with, with us uh, in the interview I did with her uh, we didn't have the sort of bonding and group team building exercises that they do before major tournaments normally and secondly they weren't on site so um, and they were in Bristol but even in, within the confines of everyone being in Bristol, there were limitations to how much interaction they could have before the tournament. And then you mentioned Anua, Kadira, uh, they come in after the first week. Uh, but uh, I think it got better. I think it, it ended up being very good by the end and became fairly edgy. It just wasn't uh, that first week. I agree with Disco George. Yeah, and I think uh, Del Piero got better too as the tournament went along. Of course, it helped that Italy uh, did so well, but. Uh, I thought his uh, analysis was really good, and I thought it was very um, from the heart. It felt very honest, and um, he was pouring his soul out there. He was, I mean, in terms of <laughs> the highs and the lows, but mostly highs. But I, I really enjoyed that. That was kind of a, a standout moment for me. Uh, last comment before we move on to discussion of the Copa and uh, Gold Cup. This comes from Mike Sale. Mike says, I thoroughly enjoyed watching the Euros, but unfortunately I felt the entire tournament was tarnished by the poor behaviour of the English fans during the Germany and Denmark games, and especially after the final. The irony uh, in this is that the English squad taking a knee before each match to highlight the abuse and racial injustice in European football. I also can't forget the hardline stance of Hungary toward the LGBTQ plus community. My question is this. Why didn't ESPN, which is well known for its documentaries um, such as Behind the Lions and 30 for 30, do a story on these ongoing problems in European football? It's not like the England squad just randomly decided one day to take a knee or that UEFA decided to award matches in Hungary a week before the tournament. These issues have been going on for decades. Was ESPN in a situation where they did not want to ruffle any feathers before the next bidding cycle for the European Championship? Question mark. I don't know. I mean, Mike, that's those are great points. I, I think, in particular, I found uh, the the irony before we we focus on ESPN of the English fans' behavior, which I agree was disgraceful. Quite frankly, their booing of the their, their patronization towards Scotland and then their booing of the German national anthem turned me against them. I, I had been supporting them prior to the tournament, um, but the irony I find is that the British media was so consistently. Um, painting a picture of you know what uh, the euro 2012 is in ukraine and poland england fans don't travel there there'll be hooliganism there'll be violence there'll be racism and then same thing before the world cup in russia oh don't travel there will be hooliganism violence racism what ends up happening that stuff happens in 2020 in a tournament england is hosting on english soil so I, that I find very ironic, that the English press for the last decade has been quick to condemn other host nations, particularly in Eastern Europe, but then it, they, don't, they, they don't have their own house in order. Um, as far as ESPN not focusing on it, to me it's kind of inexplicable. I give Archie Rintut uh, a lot of credit. He um, 
was in Munich, right, uh, for the uh, Hungary-Germany game, which became a focal point because the Meyer Munich wanted to light up the stadium uh, in Munich, uh, uh, rainbow colors, because Hungary was coming in the midst of this. Uh, he, he didn't shy away from it in his pre-match set piece, so to speak. But um, in terms of spontaneity and talking about it in the studio, it seems like it was glossed over uh, for the most part. And then in terms of the the England uh, fan behavior in both the semifinal and the final, uh, I don't know. I don't understand it because there has been so much coverage. Uh, and I, I criticized the British media right uh, uh, just now about the way they went into 2012 and 2018. But the British media has been very open about, oh, my goodness, we had a problem with the final. You know, we were close to not being able to play that match. There was too much happening with ticketless fans. There was too much happening with Italy fans being attacked. There was too much happening even at Leicester Square with, with flares. Um, but yet it wasn't really discussed in uh, – um, on ESPN, so that that is a, that is a really I don't know if it has to do with this is the last tournament, Chris, maybe of the right cycle. I think uh, if that played into it, I think partly partly that where I mean ESPN wants to present a great tournament and focusing on the soccer in on the games itself and a little bit on you mean everything around it, but for the most part, it's mostly focused on the games and the talking points. That's what the vast majority of us want to to watch and listen to, um, and I think. But the, in the back of their minds, they must be thinking, okay, well, Euro twenty twenty played in the summer of twenty twenty one is the final one as part of the um, the current deal that ESPN has with UEFA, and uh, of course, uh, ESPN has the rights to the World Cup qualifiers uh, from UEFA, so for the next year or so. Uh, for those games but um, within the next year we'll find out who has the rights for the next Euro so Euro 2024 and and beyond and maybe it is ESPN and I'm sure ESPN's already had discussions with with, uh, UEFA about wanting to continue that so by ESPN focusing on the games specifically and not ruffling any feathers um, I mean that puts them in, in a good stance with UEFA and may increase the the likelihood of a of a, a, a possibility that they could renew the rights for another four years or eight years or however long it is. But I would say though, Kartik, I think a lot of it too, really, in fairness to ESPN, is just focused on resources. So yes, you have Archie Rintut who's doing some work for ESPN. I wouldn't be surprised too if he was also doing work for Sky Sports News. Uh, I think he's done some stuff for, for uh, CBS Sports in the past. He, he's on the Guardian podcast all the time as yeah well. so so he's probably a freelancer so probably not a full-time espn employee so he's bouncing from position to position doing things for a whole bunch of different networks but the only person really that was um on site um across europe was sam borden and sam i have a lot, a lot of respect for more so the, the kind of, he does a lot of the feature pieces kind of like i mean i don't know the city of Budapest and kind of the history and kind of a piece about what's happening in, I mean, I don't know, whatever it may be, but he's not the type of uh, reporter that's going to focus on kind of uh, feet uh, feet on the ground, uh, here's what's happening inside um, I don't know, the riots or the hooliganism in England. I think you need a team of people going into some dangerous areas to kind of cover those stories. 
But so, so my thing is, is that I think it's more so resources. I don't think that they're set up to do that. Um, they could be if they wanted to, if that's something of interest. And uh, they could do a 30 for 30 or they could do a behind the lines. But it also could be something that they do about um, the Mexican uh, goalkeeper chance. There's a, there's a lot of – I mean, England's not the only country in this world that has issues with um, – Violence and racism, and and now these things came front and center from this tournament because a lot of the games, a lot of the major games in this tournament were hosted in England, and with the COVID rules and the relaxation of those rules um, in the UK, more so than most European countries, there's a lot more people in the streets, um, and with the UK and England having a very big drinking culture things were bound to happen and it seemed to be really poorly policed especially the final they were not prepared for any of this uh, which we saw too at Old Trafford right with the Super League protests that uh, the UK police forces and security were I mean just overwhelmed by the number of people coming to the stadium so so poor policing for sure but for ESPN I think it's just a lack of resources at the end of the day I don't think it's a conscious uh, decision to um avoid these topics this having been said uh and maybe it's again because they had gab marcotti on site with them in 2016 they were able to uh, uh report on the hooliganism between english and russian fans uh in leon and also on the fights between croatian fans which was also related to the politics of the uh of what was going on in their federation at the time the factions in fact there was a faction of croatia fans who were trying to get croatia disqualified from the euros um and as it turns out croatia had a good tournament they won their group they beat spain um but uh they reported on site about that. I think part of it also, Chris, goes back to COVID and them not having reporters on site. Yeah, uh, but there, there was the, the, for, for the final though. So the final, I was running late. I, I I can't even remember what I was doing, but I was running late, and so like half an hour before the the game, the final of Euro twenty twenty was ready to start. I was listening to BBC Radio Five Live, so the the main sports station radio station in the UK, listening to that on TuneIn. And the commentators are there are saying like, hey, we're having uh, – we're hearing reports of people outside the stadium that have tickets, whether it's family members or whether it's colleagues. They're having tickets and they're extremely anxious because they're trying to get into the stadium. There's a whole bunch of issues. There's backup uh, – back, um, the lines are backing up and it's really hard to get everyone into the stadium. And they're thinking at that point that the game may be delayed because there's just a, a, a mad rush, a lot of people trying to get into the stadium with tickets. Then I get so as soon as I pull into the house and switch on ESPN, then it's Kelly Cates and Stuart Robson in Wembley Way on a platform and saying they said like, well, things seem to be pretty calm here right now and things are moving along nicely and uh, yeah, we're really excited about the game and Stuart, what do you think about England's chances? And Stuart Robson was like, I think England can win this game. They're really well, I mean, great in defense, strong in the back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I was like, wait a second, did I miss something? Did I, t because I was tuning in late, did I miss like maybe a 10 or 15 minutes expose that ESPN did said like, hey, there's some issues going on here. 
I don't know. So was was that a conscious decision that ESPN made not to cover that? Did they not see it, or did they say, okay, let's, let's stay on script and let's focus on the discussion about the game and not talk about what's happening uh, outside the stadium? And and that's something that in the past, Kartik, I think we've criticised uh, Fox for, especially during the World Cup coverage, especially during the coverage when it was in Russia, where there was a lot of incidents happening. Um, outside of stadiums and I can't remember specifically what it was but there was a lot of things happening uh, around the games and I think whether it was um, was it the the, um, the blood tests for some of the Russian athletes and there was a lot of controversy happening off the pitch and we criticised Fox for that. This one seems to be, maybe ESPN did say hey let's this, this not focus on that Let's just focus on 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 the discussion of these games. So, which which is not good. You ha- you have to cover all bases. I think. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't good particularly uh, because, as I said, I, I've, I'm as I said just a moment ago, I criticized the UK media for being very um, very judgmental about Ukraine, Poland, and Russia um, going into those tournaments and the things that they had. They had the gloom and doom, the panorama program, everything that they had portrayed didn't come to pass during the tournaments. Right. Uh, but they were really uh, embarrassed, I think. Um, a, the day after the match, Monday, you know, part of the English media is like, oh, yeah, we lost on pens. And, uh, you know, this was our best chance to win a trophy since 1966. But then the other half of the UK media is like, we're really embarrassed. We have a societal problem. We have uh, uh, an issue, uh, a political problem, too. I know Gary Neville came on Sky and attacked the prime minister, blaming him for a lot of it, etc. But um, the point is they confronted it, which I didn't really expect. I thought they were going to try and sweep it under the rug. So that made it even more glaring that ESPN didn't talk about it quite the way we would have expected i have to chalk this up more to them not being on site with all their personnel uh, um they were they were on site a decision like fox to avoid it but maybe, yeah, maybe but, i'm being too generous well for the final they were on site right i mean most well that's true they were and that's that's the game that's really the game in question because i think there were incidents the germany game there were incidents the denmark game but it was really an issue with the final once you once the curtain was drawn back and the next day we saw everything that went on even at Leicester Square post game towards Italy fans what happened in the stands we have uh, uh, reports of, of, of young kids telling their parents hey it, uh, mommy daddy if this is football mom dad I don't want to go back I don't like football so uh, because of what they were seeing around them at Wembley and that was glossed over or just avoided yeah and but mostly in most US media you would have missed it too. I mean, like, so the only parts that I saw of what really happened or what happened for the most part was through social media or, or through, I think there were a couple of uh, blog posts from people within the industry that wrote about um, their experiences and that they had been going to games at Wembley for the last I mean, 30 to 40 years. And this was the worst experience that they ever had. And they, they were fearing for their lives at times because of uh, the lack of security and just I mean, fans rushing into the stadium. And that the, the capacity for Wembley was 90,000. I think the, the allowed capacity for this game was what, 70,000 but there were estimations that there were well over 100,000 people in the stadium maybe even much more than that and there were pictures of fans just in the uh, the aisles all crammed in I mean there wasn't a really accurate number of how many fans were in that stadium and you, you saw watching the game too 
how many of the England fans were standing through that that entire game. And it might have been too standing because of not just be wanting to cheer on their team, but standing because lack of space. You mean when it's you can fit more people into a small space or a big space uh, when everyone's standing instead of everyone sitting down. Listeners, let us know what you think about that one. That's um, definitely uh, an interesting topic. And, and did we miss anything? Did you see something that uh, is important to share with us uh, in regards to what happened and how it was covered? Maybe, maybe it was different on the um, on Univision. Maybe they, they focused more on that. Uh, Copa America, Chris Guardino has a comment. He says, when it comes to Fox's Copa America coverage, I have to say that it was one of the worst tournaments I have have ever seen covered on the English language side in quite a long time. I know that Fox was trying to broadcast the tournament, tournament cheaply, but in doing so, they completely forgot the importance of good production values when it comes to coverage. One thing that irked me about their coverage was the lack of a highlights analysis show similar to what ESPN had for the Euros with Euro Tonight. However, the thing I was most disappointed uh, with was the first few minutes of the final being on FS2 due to a Major League Baseball game being on FS1 that was in extra innings. I was watching the final at a bar that neither had FS2 or Univision meaning I missed missed the first few minutes of the game. No final of any tournament, in my view, should be moved to a secondary network. The interest around this Copa America was low to begin with, but Fox missed out on a golden chance to improve their coverage before next year's World Cup. Gold Cup. Greg says, Hi guys, I really enjoyed the show and wanted to ask you to speak uh, to something which is a major issue for the U.S. men's national team. Every two years in UEFA and Conmebol, essentially, they get to partake if they qualify in a tournament that is very uh, that is taken very seriously with their first teams. The U.S. basically only regularly gets to take part in the Gold Cup between World Cup cycles. In my opinion, there needs to be a tournament that aligns in timing with the Euros and Copa America and allows the U.S. to play its first and best team within that international window. From what I can tell, there are really only a few options. Number one, make the Gold Cup at the same time as the Euros and take it seriously. We can't complain that we don't have the caliber of teams as Europe. We are not in Europe and we will never be. We, we need to work uh, with what is available. Also, consider making the Gold Cup uh, occur in other countries to make it more of a valid tournament. In addition, let's not pretend the U.S. men's national team is above all CONCACAF nations in level, because that is not the case. Number two, convince CONMEBOL to run a tournament with CONCACAF like they did in the uh, Copa America Centenario. They didn't want to do this again for some reason this past time. But but perhaps they could still work that out for future years. To me, this is the best option if they can convince Conmebol to do it. Number three, combine with a different confederation or multiple confederations to run a tournament at that time. Look to Asia or Africa. Granted, this would be outside the norm, but perhaps interesting and worthwhile if everyone agreed that it was going to be taken seriously. I just feel like every time the U.S. plays, and it's not a World Cup or a qualifying game, it is always debated whether the game matters. I think they need other opportunities for games to truly matter, and that a tournament that is taken very seriously between World Cup cycles is crucial. I'd like to see more games where our first and best team is out there, 
and there is general agreement that the stakes are high, such as in the Euros and the Copa America. If you are a fan of the national team, it's just frustrating to only have the World Cup or qualifying games to really look forward to. Some great inputs and feedback there from Greg Kartik. This is a big topic. Um, what's your yeah. initial thoughts about it? Yeah, so first off, um, I think that an issue with the Gold Cup has been that it's played every two years and it's always played in the U.S. for monetary reasons. CONCACAF is trying to get as much money into the coffers to help fund and play it every two years to help fund the smaller island nations and help them uh, generate some revenue. So uh, often the out cycle, um, so that would be uh, historically – 9, 13, 17, now 21, have been uh, B-team uh, oriented, whereas the A-cycle, the, 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 the in-cycle, where you're not going on, when there's no um, World Cup qualifying going on, which would be, uh, uh, thinking back, 7, 11, 15, 19, those Gold Cups have been generally A-teams. So that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, second point, I like the idea of a combined tournament. It did not happen this time because of the U.S. Soccer Federation. The U.S. Soccer Federation went to uh, the common of all nations and were very patronizing saying, hey, you guys need our money, basically. Let's do a combined tournament in the summer of 2020. Turned out to be uh, 2021 because of COVID. Um, and, uh, at the time, uh, the South American countries were like, they thought it was very, very patronizing because the U.S. approach wasn't, hey, here's the sporting merit of this tournament. The U.S. approach under Carlos Cordero was, we can make you more money than you're going to make if you do just a South American tournament. And uh, they were really put out by that. So uh, we have a new president at U.S. Soccer, Cindy Parlocone. We have a new executive director, Will Wilson. It's no longer Dan Flynn, who was there at the time. Uh, Jay Burhalter, who was involved in that. Uh, he's now working with Major League Soccer. Uh, he's not at U.S. Soccer anymore. So maybe they can go back to South America and make that pitch again in a more um, in a more respectful manner and, and we'll have it happen. Because I, th- I agree, it would be great uh, for, for, for both confederations, but it was the way the U.S. went about it that really irritated um, the heads down in South America. Yeah, something needs to happen, though, Kantik. I agree with Greg because um, you look at the Gold Cup tournament and you have a, a B-team uh, Canada, you have a, a C team from the US and yes while it's great to watch US beat Haiti and Martinique and uh, Canada um, it's not you really- had a US Canada game without Davies without uh, Jonathan David on the Canadian side without right. Pulisic without McKinney etc on the American side it was like there was all this hype about Canada versus the US and I'm thinking well the star players from both countries are missing I right. mean what's yeah. I mean, what, what, you're saying this is a rivalry but uh, the guys we genuinely want to watch are not going to be in this game for either team it wasn't just the US or just Canada it was both teams so yeah sorry. yeah yeah no it's, it's, it's a good competition for those for the you mean lower down in ranks and give them experience but from the viewer's perspective it's not a high level competition and um it's if, if anything it's probably better for the el salvador's and jamaica's and and panama's and costa rica's and 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 haiti's uh to get some really valuable experience in before for a world cup but um i don't know something needs to happen i, I just don't see conmebol unless they're desperate for money I mean, making a deal with CONCACAF. And at the same time, I don't, I don't see CONCACAF uh, giving up some of their money too. Where you mean, If CONCACAF hosts the events, then CONCACAF will get, will get the majority of that money. But if they have to split it with CONMEBOL 
and then uh, they're going to get less money in their pockets, but maybe more overall. But then that that requires a major, I mean, focus in terms of having games played, like like the Copa America Centenario. That's a big undertaking to pull something like that off. Um, I think it's I think it's status quo. I think it'll be that gold cup will just happen every two years, and it'll be it is what it is. It's not a very good competition for uh, to get the U.S. ready for the World Cup. I mean, really for the qualifying. Most of these players are not playing in this tournament because we need them for the World Cup qualifying, where it really matters. So it becomes a rather meaningless tournament. Not completely meaningless, but rather meaningless. Yeah, you know, I I think back to the uh, Gold Cup in 2009, uh, which the U.S. took a B team to and had had a Confederations Cup that summer. So um, that which we don't have anymore, but the U.S. had, had... I, oh, I was going to say, I'd, I'd rather just see the U.S. play in Copa America. Have the U.S. go down Yeah. There. So so my point was going to be, I thought, I came up with this theory at the time uh, on uh, the podcast, one of the podcasts we rolled into this podcast, Major League Soccer Talk, that, oh, you know, it's still great because we're going to get a, a real look at some guys that can help in qualifying when qualifying resumes. And at the time we had an August international break, so it was resuming right away a, a, a month later. As it turns out, Stuart Holden, who uh, is now calling the games, uh, Stu Holden was the only meaningful player that came off of that Gold Cup team that then kind of got integrated into the qualifying squad. So even though the U.S. had reached the finals, basically it was a completely different team than played in World Cup qualifying a month later. So, um, And I'm sure there's similar examples with other countries more recently with the Gold Cup. So I would would rather see Karteka prefer to see a foreign exchange program where the U.S. goes to play in Copa America and then CONMEBOL sends, I don't know, uh, Chile. And Chile comes up and, and plays in, in the, the Gold Cup and just kind of rotate it a little bit uh, where you keep the tournament separate and give good experience to, I mean, kind of mix and match over, over the years as they go by. I, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that is going to happen. It should happen. And, and if the U.S. wants to get quality opposition, uh, and get some really meaningful games. I mean, I'd love to see them battle with Brazil and Argentina and Colombia and Uruguay and Ecuador, etc. in a really, really meaty competition. All right, uh, David has some feedback about uh, Champions League and Paramount+. Plus. He says, uh, has Paramount+, Plus announced if they will be streaming any preliminary or qualifying round games of the Champions League this season. Thank you for a great podcast. And yes, they have. So uh, if you go to worldsoccertalk.com, we've got the schedule of all the um, Champions League qualifying games that Paramount Plus are showing, as well as the UEFA Europa Conference League qualifying games too. And there's quite a lot of games um, featured this week and next week. So, So check out our website for that. Bram says, uh, Chris, you and Kartik's points about dedicated soccer fans perhaps not being CBS's intended audience are fair, but I'd note that other sports telecasts are critiqued based on whether or not the announcers take the event seriously enough in how they approach the telecast. So soccer should not be left out of that just because while its audience has grown in, in the US in recent years, it still hasn't reached the heights that those other sports have reached. Indeed, as far as soccer telecasts are concerned, 
I recall other networks, for example, ESPN and Fox, having relative uh, relative soccer newcomers as game announcers on recent World Cups and Champions League matches, for example, getting flack for their perceived lack of quality. So why not demand the same as a viewer from CBS too? It's a challenge, I grant you, for a broadcaster to satisfy both diehard fans and newbies. But to my ears, CBS missed the mark by adding all that extra fluff and not giving the events a hand more respect, for lack of a better word, in how it was presented. And I think one of the things about um, NBC's uh, coverage of the Premier League is that the the way that they... um, televised the Premier League from 2013 onwards, especially the first couple of years, so 2013, 14, and 15, is that they were able to not dumb it down, but speak intelligently uh, to a viewership that would be, to I mean, to an audience that, that the diehards would love it, and then newcomers would actually learn a lot from it too at the same time. So it, it is hard, hard to do, to balance that. And I think they did really, really well in those first few year, years of, of televising um, the league. MLS uh, topics. Uh, Bill Reese says, I'd like to give some praise for former MLS turned uh, color commentator Lloyd Sam. The former New York Red Bulls and DC United midfielder has been doing great work in color commentary on USL broadcasts, and he did a fantastic job calling the second leg of the Curaçao-Panama World Cup qualifier as a solo effort. He's my favorite type of color commentator. He's fun, he's relaxed, he's insightful, and when you listen to him call a game, it's like watching a match with a friend who knows a ton about the game and can drop in fascinating little tidbits. If Shep Messing ever decides to retire from color commentary for Red Bulls games, I hope MSG Network uh, gives Lloyd a call. And uh, Kartik, what do you think about that? I worked with him very closely. Um, actually, uh, with Miami FC, I was uh, um, the uh, communications person, and he played for us. He finished his career with us. And uh, actually, there is a uh, there is a video of a um, a uh, uh, interview I taped with him because I did interviews. Uh, I was also the on air personality in addition to be the communications guy. That's what happens at uh, lower division teams, right? You end up having to do both jobs, unlike uh, MLS teams that have a. Uh, a dedicated comm staff and then a dedicated broadcast staff that's separate. So um, he was in the middle of a lot of our videos because he was so animated and was so analytical. And there's a sit-down interview I did with him, uh, which is really good in our Behind the Bad series from 2019. And then also um, when we uh, opened the Miami FC Academy, uh, have a lot of footage uh, uh, of him analyzing and, and coaching the kids and doing things uh, there that was really good, that showed he was going to be a really good color commentator. Uh, Harrison Heath was the other guy that was really uh, stand out in that video, the, the son of uh, Minnesota uh, United head coach uh, Adrian Heath and former Manchester City and Everton star Adrian Heath. Um, the point about Lloyd Sam, the other point I was going to make is that I actually wanted to bring him in the booth for some matches when he wasn't playing, uh, a suggestion that was internally vetoed. But um, I knew he was going to be really, really good. And he's been a, a pleasure to work with. Uh, I've heard from the, uh, some of the people working with him on USL broadcast. So yep. uh, big things expected for him. Thank you, Bill. That way, I, I completely agree, and I, I'd love to see him not just on Red Bull broadcast, but maybe on on national broadcasts for for MLS and other things in the near future. 
Yeah, my, my one to watch is uh, Nigel Riococo. Uh, who's done some really oh, good, yeah, I agree. Same, same. good uh, co-commentary for a lot of the uh, Copa Libertadores games for um, for the world feeds. So so he he's one that's uh, getting better and better. And of course, an, another perform- former professional footballer. Yeah, and Lloyd Sam, uh, for those who don't know, was um, a longtime player in uh, England in the lower leagues, uh, Leeds United, among other clubs, uh, and uh, uh, brings a wealth of knowledge of both English football and American soccer now to the broadcast booth. And uh, by the way, uh, before we, we depart the subject, Nigel Rio Coker has been so good on Copa Libertadores coverage, he's now getting plaudits uh, in the UK for his uh, for his work. So uh, that's also good to see in here, and, and a lot of people enjoying uh, his analysis, and he's had to really cut his teeth in, in South American football, uh, which a lot of English commentators, don't, uh, former players, don't have to do. So uh, he now probably has a greater uh, library of knowledge than most of his former uh, uh, former teammates that are doing co-commentary. Yeah, that, that, that's the interesting thing, to, too, is that uh, in the U.K., uh, in England, especially, a lot of the uh, the Copa America coverage and Copa Libertadores, I think, is on the BBC. So, but with the time difference, a lot of these games are on at maybe like I don't know, one in the morning, midnight, two o'clock in the morning. So it's not a huge audience, but um, I think it's it's actually interesting. It's kind of unusual to be seeing BBC doing that, but probably the the rights fees to get uh, some of these tournaments in the UK, there probably isn't a lot of demand for it. So it's a good way to, to for the BBC, who are strapped for cash, uh, to get some rights to some of these uh, soccer competitions and, and still provide those. And then I mean, through that, then people can actually listen to I mean, the Nigel Riococos of the world, etc., all right, listeners, we want you to have your say. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com, as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk, and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can always post your comments on the podcast uh, thread on worldsoccertalk.com. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've done the, the last uh, version of this show, so um, we definitely appreciate the feedback that you give. It really is what drives the show uh, forward. So if you do have any questions about television coverage or uh, what you saw or some of, your, some of the things we talked about or have, uh, have any questions about uh, streaming, etc., let us know, and we would love to read those out on air. So, Kartik, in closing, um, man, there's so much, uh, so much to get to, but... Uh, of course, you got the Gold Cup coming up. Um, you got the uh, quarterfinals this weekend. Uh, you've got a whole bunch of friendlies from around the world. You've got uh, the Olympics. You have the women's U.S. women's national team. The kickoff times, Kartik, are going to be a little bit difficult, though. So the kickoff times for the U.S. games are 4.30 in the morning, Eastern time. And then the second game, I think, against New Zealand is at 7.30 this weekend. And then the third game against Australia, I believe it is, uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday is at four o'clock in the morning. Um, what about you, Kartik? Are you going to be watching those games or are you going to be recording them and then watching them later? Yeah, I mean, it's the only Olympics I'm planning on really watching is the U.S. women. Or actually, should really? say U.S. women. women. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Well, it's, it's weird, of, though. I'm not really a fan of other sports. So, uh, as we well, talked about, yeah. so I, I'll be watching the women's football tournament and that's it. That's all I've watched the last few Olympics, honestly. I mean, I haven't even watched the men's football tournament for the most part. Um, it will for, be, for, it will be interesting. It will be interesting because I'm not a fan of a lot of other sports, but. 
every time the Olympics are on, the Summer Olympics, I always watch it with the family. So sometimes I might be watching the gymnastics, sometimes I might be watching um, the swimming or kind of the, I mean, just the different events kind of at random and seeing some of the amazing things that are happening happening from a sporting uh, perspective, you know, whether it's athletics, etc. This one, I have to say, this is probably the least advertised uh, Olympics that I can remember. I, I haven't seen any advertising from, from NBC Sports. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've I, seen I very want, little yeah. buzz about this. Yeah, I just watch four days of golf. I say I don't like other sports. I generally don't watch anything except for golf um these days i'm not even really watching college sports anymore which i used to a few years ago uh but i went through four days of watching the open on various nbc networks some on peacock some on golf which is owned by comcast uh and a lot on nbc over the air and saw very little olympics advertising and uh the talk about the olympics was oh well colin marikawa is going to represent the u.s in, in in the uh in the in the golf tournament in the Olympics, so that surprised me. Yeah, I didn't see that much Olympic advertising during the during the Open, uh, which was at Royal St. George's, by the way, this year. So, um, just for those who uh, who don't know the geography of England, you had <laughs> within a week you had the Euro 2020 final at Wembley, which is in uh, Northwest London. You had Wimbledon uh, uh, in, in final, men's and women's, and all the finals, which is. Uh, south of the river really kind of southwest south central london and then you had the british open this season the open the open this year at um royal st george's which is in kent normally it's in scotland or of course in northern england so uh, london really was the epicenter of the sporting world for the last week and they didn't host the olympics so that's that's kind of an irony yeah it just seems strange that i I don't think i've ever seen any advertising for uh, the Olympics and NBC. It, it's just normally you're, you're just almost like sick of seeing the commercials and sick sick of seeing the hype. Yeah. I've, I mean, it starts this week. So where is it? I don't know. But um, yeah, well, for me personally, I'll, I'll be yeah. watching the games. I mean, the seven thirty game against New Zealand. I'll probably watch that live. The four thirty in the morning and the four o'clock morning. I'll, I'll probably, I'm sure, I'll, I'll tape those and watch those later. But. Um, I don't know. I just hope that uh, hope the buzz picks up because this one might be underwhelming, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, Liga Do and uh, Bundesliga Second Division kick off this weekend. Uh, I'm not sure uh, about the Bundesliga matches being on ESPN Plus, but BN does have um, a couple of uh, uh, of French Second Division matches in, yeah. in the coming weeks. So, so check as, that out. As of recording this, which is Tuesday afternoon. Um, I believe on Friday uh, ESPN Plus will have the uh, the game that Schalke against uh, is it um, oh gosh Hamburg yes thank you Hamburg against Schalke is going to be the big game on, on Friday and even though ESPN has not announced it yet I believe they'll have that game on uh, they also will have the opening weekend of the Belgian Pro League on this weekend there's a lot of soccer to look at look at so go to worldsoccertalk.com or download the Soccer TV Schedules app on app uh, on Android and or the iOS store, and you'll see the schedule for all the games available. There's a ton. All right, Kartik, so heading into another weekend of football from around the world, whether it's Olympics, uh, Second League of, of France, Belgian League, Major League Soccer, you name it, what are you going to do and what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.